0: The topic we're trying to tackle today is okay. I think perhaps one of the broadest ones that we tried to topic we tried to tackle. Uh, I when I was doing my research, the more I was delving into it, the more I realized how expansive the topic really is. And I kinda of told my wife, I said, I, I think that if we really wanted to do this properly from beginning to end with all the sources and kind of really delve into it in a serious way, we could even go for like multiple classes, like four or five. Uh, Because it seems like it's a topic that interests us, but it's also a topic that interests the rabbis many, many years ago. What's the issue at hand? The issue at hand is kind of this balancing act of personal responsibility and God's control. We're working with a certain assumption. The assumption is that the Jewish God, the definition of the Jewish God is creator, sustainer, and supervisor. That not only did God create, but He sustains. Which means it's not like He created and went on, went off to the cosmos to do other things. You know, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a theology that's an, an antithetical to Judaism. He create, He created, but is still sustaining, right? If God were to seize, this is the first, the first page of Maimonides, um, which I actually brought today because I thought we might actually use. First page of Maimonides says, if God were to seize... Right? Well, obviously it's, not a, it's an impossibility, but if that were to happen, then everything which is dependent upon God were to cease as well. It's kind of like if you, if you pull the lamp out of the outlet, it can no longer it doesn't have that flow of, of uh, electricity, it's not going to work. You know, that's kind of what we are, but not just us, all of humanity, all of, uh, all of living things in the whole world, everything, everything. You know? uh, we're all kind of living off, uh, off God's nourishment, so to speak. And the last kind of uh, element of uh, of our definition of God, or the simple, simplistic definition of God, is that God supervises as well. Which means that God's involved with us on an individual level. This is the thing that a lot of people, or a lot of scientists, the great scientists, that will conclude that the uh, complexity of the universe right, mandates a certain intelligent designed to it. There are a lot of uh, scientists that will readily admit to that. It's, it's too complex, it's too perfect, it's too organized. Uh, you know, you take a look at the brain, right? The brain is, we're talking about trillions of, of neurons just intersecting, it's so all perfect. You know, it's this, this machine that we can't even grasp how complex it is. It's got to have some sort of designer. And that's, on, uh, that's just in our brain, in our little, little box, little cranium here but you go, once you expand that to the whole universe and to the cosmos and to everything being so perfectly organized, we have to have had some designer. That's a conclusion a lot of people are willing to draw. However, this Jewish God who relates to us, who, who communicates with man, who gives us a Torah, who speaks to the prophets, right? but who cares about us as individuals, who we could pray to and that making some sort of impact, a supervising God that... Why? That's some, somehow a, a leap too far to, you know, to jump because, like this God who is capable of such grandiose things, why would He care about pity humans? So the third element that we say about God on this simplistic definition of God—creator, sustainer, supervisor—is that God supervises us as an individual. Hence, right, if we pray, right, God can hear us. That's the, uh, very uh, ele- you know elemental elementary, sorry, aspect of Judaism is that we could relate to God. God gives us a Torah, right? God wants us to have a good life, right? God loves us like, 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 like a father. He And, and then and our actions matter as well. So everything, those all things intersect with this idea of God supervising us. Uh, but additionally, we say that kind of God has planned for us. Right? God gives us a mission. We're told that everyone has to say that the world was created for me, I have responsibilities. Not only on a collective or national scale, the Jewish people have what we call the mission of Tikkun Olam, we spoke about that once. Collectively we have kind of a vision of what we're supposed to accomplish as a nation, but individually as well. We have a mission that we're supposed to accomplish as well, and our tools, in our tool set, were specifically designed for us individually to help us accomplish what 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 we need to so we're talking about a God, we're, we're describing a God that is uh, involved in the most minute aspects of us individually. We call this hashkacha pratit, which means individual supervision. If I do something, uh, if I do something, it matters, right? You know, it doesn't change God, of course, I won't get into that philosophical discussion. God doesn't, isn't impacted, right? But it matters, Okay, so that's the background of, of, our, of, our, of our discussion. Now, um, for us, like, God gives us a lot of kind of, um, he makes it easier for us to wrap our head around this by giving us all, like, stamps of, like, we're all individuals, you know. Yeah, there's so much about us with our DNA. We're, we're, we're very highly individualized entities. Uh, we all have a different perspective on life. Right? You, every two people, there's no two people in the world that agree on everything. It's not possible. Everyone has their own way of looking at things. Everyone looks different. Everyone has a different voice. This There's billions of people in the world, and they don't all sound the same. It's it's just remarkable. Yeah. What's what's the joke?
1: <laughs> now I, I always think it's remarkable how you can hear one or two words or syllables, and know who's yeah. It's, it's remarkable. Talking.
0: Yeah, and the Talmud points out says. Got with there's a very very interesting string of Talmudic statements in Sanhedrin. But one of the and it talks about this particular point that no two people look alike. Remarkable. Think about that. Try crafting eight billion uh, faces, and each one of them is different, and remarkably different that they're distinguishable from each other. Every single one. Right. It's God's handy it's saying we are an individual. You're an individual. You're not just like everyone else. You're not just some sort of puppet. You have a mission. You have responsibilities. You're unique. So that's the backdrop of our discussion. So we have this individualized relationship with God. He has a plan for us. And he's evolved. He's evolved with every aspect of our lives. On one hand. On the other hand, we have Responsibilities. As an individual, right, from our perspective, so to speak, we have to do things. We have to have a job. We have to have a family. We have to have, we have, to have personal responsibility. We have to uh, be involved in a community. Right? And we kind of have these two elements where, on one hand, God kind of is mapping out our lives. On the other hand, we're kind of you know, blazing our own trail in life uh, on a big scale and an individual scale as well. We make decisions all the time what's the impact of our decisions right? how much is predetermined and how much is kind of is 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 up, is up is up for is up for, is up for change um, so obviously we could tell it's, it's a very very big and broad topic and um, what i wanted to do is kind of give like by way of introduction what i just randomly thought of like five different questions that we could have uh, about uh, about uh, this uh, this means kind of make this more real by trying to view it in, in, in light of, uh, of a certain, let's say, uh, quandary that we may have. So, if we believe that God is supervising us individually, and he, if I live or if I die, it's in his hands. And what happens to me if I, God forbid, get cancer or get hit by a truck, it's in his hands, right? It's in his hands. No, no one here knows, even the healthiest person, you don't know what, you, you don't know, we're feeble, we're, we're, we're in the hands of the Almighty. Okay, if so, do I have anything to lose by walking into a highway blindfolded? What do you think? Uh, is, it a legi- is it a legitimate question or not? If I. No, it's in- not a legitimate question. Why, why, why not? It?
2: No, for heaven's sakes. We know better than to walk in a highway with a blindfold
0: on. Okay, so if we know better.
2: And man has already told you before, don't do that because you can see what happened to you. I mean, you have examples all the time of idiots getting run over and stuff like that. You know, so. not
1: having enough knowledge not to go to dangerous places.
0: Okay, so we're saying it's illegitimate. It's not a legitimate question because yes, like, like you guys are basically saying the same thing. It, God gave us the intelligence and the understanding that if we do dangerous things, dangerous things can happen to us. But what you're really saying is that I could really interfere with God's plan with for me. Right. Right? I can interfere. God says, listen, this guy, I wanted to live 70 years. I wanted to accomplish this. I wanted to have this kind of family. That's what, that's what I expect of him. Oh. Right? Now, what this guy is going to do by living maybe a more dangerous lifestyle, they could interfere with that and say, no, you're going to die when you're 17 crossing the highway blindfolded. So that's. I agree that you're right, but I want. I want to just. Uh, I want to just extrapolate from that. Kind of what that means. That means that man has the ability to interfere with God's plans for him.
1: But that, then you could say that God really had that plan for him to begin with, and he's just following that plan. Okay, so uh, and you could believe that,
3: and you could blame it on. Yes. When teenagers are teenagers, they don't yet, in my mind's eye, fully grasp, because they're not in their 20s, and the logic has not yet formally developed as a teenager, he doesn't yet get the grasp.
1: They still feel they're immortal. They do feel
3: they're immortal, and they do like to tempt fate. Yes. And I think part of that is the process. have a death wish. Well, they don't yet understand don't so. their own um, their own power
0: and their own decision making <laughs> skills. Okay, so um, the, uh, it seems I like everyone seems, seems to agree, but I, I I want to impress upon us that this is a major major state. I agree, they're all right, and I'll and we'll, we'll go to some of the sources that say let's that seems that seem to indicate that. But the uh, and your, your point kind of to make this ties into pretzel. Your point. Um, uh, I forgot my point. Uh, right. Yeah. Really <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> <laughs> Here's John
2: sitting up there in the seat. And he knows everything <laughs> as it begins, and he knows how it's going to end. No, and He's probably saying, "Here's what I want John to do," but that dork's going to walk out on the freeway Yay. and get run over.
1: Yeah. So. so why
2: can't he supervise and do something like that? said "Don't do that, idiot." Well, maybe he did, he did by giving you
0: some him. intelligence, like you yourself said. You yourself
1: said, "Hey, he God gives you the, the knowledge, what he's and me. you, uh, you yeah, know." And God
3: intervenes all the yeah. time
1: when <laughs> we make stupid choices. Is that true? Oh, you believe that?
3: Oh,
1: clearly. Oh, okay. To save,
0: to save, <laughs> okay. The question is also: Is stupid choices the same thing as negligent choices? Making the wrong decision. It's a
3: matter of perspective, because they both do not. It's nice you. to believe that, and I think God does have compassion. In, and I think
0: okay, God so let's so let's let's try to dig into some sources. But first, I have a few more questions here. This listen to this one, guys. If someone gets sick, so we all know, we all know someone who's sick. We live in the biggest medical center of the world. Tons of times you see people coming in here. They have, God forbid, you know. Uh, you know, diseases, and it's really sad. But who made him sick?
3: Could have been an issue of genetics.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. But remember, he's talking
1: on a religious basis.
0: All right. But right. we're sick. working yeah. with that backdrop, yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. If someone gets sick, it's God who made them sick, right? No. Or God enabled them to become sick, right? God well, allowed it to happen. Well, you can say, say that
1: because you have it's the bacteria that, and the viruses and all these other things are there. He, if he put them there. So it, it allows it to happen. He allows it's it to happen. Pers- yeah. yeah, he may, say he he may to not have pointed his finger. So,
0: someone, let's say, going to seek medical medical attention, or let's talk about it on a different on different level. Someone praying to God to grant someone a, uh, a healing. Is that trying to interfere with God? Are we we have part of our prayers, the the Amidah prayer every day, multiple times. We have. The prayer for health. health, and we say that if God, you know, if someone's sick, you know, please God, you know, please, God grant him a, a a complete recovery. What are we doing, right? Perhaps God is saying, listen, someone is sick, and I made him sick. I think maybe he should die because that's what I decided. And who are we to say, you know what? We think it maybe it's better that he lives. Are we once again interfering with with uh, with uh, with what God is doing for
4: us? Not should right. we
0: not should we not go to the doctor, or should we should we not pray, or should we? oh, Clearly, we should pray because that's part of the prayer. I don't think it's interfering with God. I think He's going to go on and do what He wants to do. We've been given. I the- think that it's 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 okay to pray. I mean, it's God's
4: will anyway, and He knows and expects us to pray for those people. But He's still going to do what He's going to do. But it's
1: expected. That he's- well, it's interference about- is act. Well, why pray well, Prayer if, is asking nicely. Yeah, but why oh. pray if you know that you're not going to by prayer you're well, not going you to change the outcome? Yeah. Maybe you Change his mind,
5: but
3: you could very we well change the outcome if it is up to God. But it's about the partnership that
1: we have with We've God. God yeah. our world.
3: Partnership. But, well, that's I, love
4: the, I like yeah, that word. Oh. word. That's a good word. Yes, you know, <laughs> word. I would like to add that it, everything that happens in life is opportunities for us to at godly and what is one of the things that he wants to do is care for the sick. So if there were no sick, then we wouldn't have the opportunity to care for the so sick. So you're looking at it
0: uh, from the perspective oh, of not, it's not about you know, what actually can happen with this opportunity for everyone else to... Yeah,
4: it's like
0: there's, If everyone was
1: rich, no one would have the opportunity to give a tzedakah.
0: You know who says that? Those words, word for word, Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Akiva was asked the question of why does God make poor people? And he says because otherwise there would, no, would there be any merit for the other people to try to help them. Yeah.
4: I think it's the same
1: thing. Right. So, I mean, this whole thing has to do with if everything is predetermined.
0: No, oh, a, I never said anything predetermined.
1: Well, what if you say, if God had I got follow, as a plan. Then, I didn't no, say predetermined. Clearly, no, it's not... Pre, oh, well, maybe it is. <laughs> predetermined versus, your, you know, you have your own free choice. Or, or what's the interplay? The, the, what's yeah, the
0: interplay? Right, I'm, yeah. I don't want to look at... I don't, I don't think that it has to be that cut and dried okay. where it's... Uh, Some other questions here. If someone is, let's say, uh, you know, has a high cholesterol and is overweight or is obese and all they want to do is just eat steak prep. I personally know someone like this. and They take literally like 100, $100 worth of meat Kosher meat, and uh, <laughs> no, because hundred dollars $100 of, of kosher meat is a lot is a lot less meat than hundred dollars yeah. of non-kosher meat. Yeah. So, and he just goes, I saw this guy like he's just guzzling guzzling steaks, guzzling, and could he legitimately say, "Listen, if God wants me to die, I'll die. If God doesn't want me to die, I won't die. I and mean, my actions have no bearing on that." But a lot of or people think Or we way. say, "Well, yes." The question is, what's the legitimacy of that? Can someone endanger themselves, not necessarily by walking through a free over this imminent danger, but more like a long-term danger where, yes, this one bite of meat is not necessarily going to directly contribute to...
3: it's all part of God's plan. He needed to go through this process and then have a health challenge to recognize how precarious our health is and indeed how valuable it is. Or, what we are yeah, I
0: mean, we, we, saying is that he is presented with his particular free will choice where he has to engage with this kind of, let's say, um, conflict, and this is his room for his growth.
3: And it's also room for our growth because we are going to benefit through the lens of his experience as well. And
0: we can learn from him as well.
3: Absolutely. Fantastic. Everything is a mirror back to us. The,
1: the food things it's, it's interesting how so the, the treatments or the, whatever they change over time. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a static thing that this when I started in, in training a few years ago, cholesterol was a big thing. then it died out for a long time. Then it came back in you had this number and that number now all of a sudden the latest is the LDL and the LDL was needs to be hundred now 80, now they want it to be, say, low-density low lipoprotein, the, right. the, um, the bad cholesterol. That's the,
2: the other, problem. We get so much information. This week is as good, next week is not.
1: Yeah, well, we... It's like d- coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Every
0: week you hear a different story about it. Yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the other thing, when, when I was in training, heparin, which is a blood <clears> thinner, <throat> <throat> used to be the thing, you yeah. had a acute stroke, you put the people on heparin. And then, then it died out, then it's on again, then we were using intravenous heparin, now it's out the window for most, almost all things. The point is we don't, we don't necessarily know what the right way is. Yes, that's, you got yeah, it. but we know for sure, some, <laughs> some things we know
0: for sure like, that are deleterious to your health. Yeah. Either way, I want to give a few more examples, well let's say one more uh, example here of, I think this is maybe much more of a, of a practical, it's a very big political issue in Israel right now. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware, but in Israel, Israel is the only country out of 212 countries in the United Nations that has mandatory conscription of women, the only country in the world. Uh, Men as well, obviously, but everyone in Israel is obligated, mandatory to have to conscript in in the army uh, at the age of 18. Uh, My dad grew up in Israel, and he went to the army when he was 18. Uh, Now, in the 1950s, there was an agreement that was hatched Amongst uh, b- between the uh, the yeshivas, which is like the the, the, the yeah the Torah basically universities, uh, and the army, that they are exempt. They get an exemption because they're studying Torah. And at that time, it was about like four or five hundred students in yeshiva, and that number has just grown exponentially. Now there's like yeah. more than a hundred thousand uh, Israelis that are in yeshiva and not in the army. So now it's a very very hot. Political issue in Israel today, uh, where they uh, this status what they call it the status quo, which is what's been around for sixty years, uh, they want to change it. Uh, they want to make uh, uh, they want to make that everyone has to go to everyone has to go, including yeshiva students. Maybe the reduce the amount of exemptions. Uh, I think that this debate or this or our discussion today kind of really uh, is basically is kind of what the. The political argument's all about. On one hand, we have this: we say that yes, Torah study is, is crucial, to Jewish people, uh, and it saves lives as well. You know that the, the merit of, of of the scholars that are just you know toiling away in Torah. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have you know physical threats that the uh, nation is facing, uh, and it's real. And they may or may not need more soldiers. If they even need more soldiers, and there's an imminent uh, threat of life, then you know we should close all the books and go go fight. You know, even even in even during the you know the times of uh, you know the, the biblical times, everyone went to everyone went to war. It was it was it was a war of a mitzvah, so everyone went, including the scholars, including everyone else.
2: In '67, there was a whole bunch of Israeli paratrooper ladies that run the Egyptians off in a critical battle.
0: Yeah, well, they didn't have the air support, so... Well, they had the air support.
2: Listen, you don't need air support when them wild women come down there. Yeah,
4: well... (laughs) I I thought I read something toward that, like, during times... uh, that they would split into thirds. a third would pray, a third would do supplies, and a third would go into combat.
0: Well, um, I think you might be referring to, uh, in next week's Parsha, um, where Jacob is preparing for battle with his brother Esau, or Esau, and he does three things. He does prayer. He does um, prayer, battle, and what? what was the third one?
4: Oh, this was this is where uh, Moses and they had to go into. Uh,
0: everyone think, went to battle at times, Moses. Besides for the besides for the tribe of Levi. I thought yeah, one one person should
4: actually tri- pray for each person in battle. I thought that's where the whole thing when Israel came about was from that
5: partial Um
0: I believe everyone went to battle besides for the tribe of Levi. Okay. Um, so Tribal. Levi, there's one of the tribes because they were they were always the spiritual, you know, dedicated to spiritual activities.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, so you yeah, the, the question conscientious is, conscientious objectors in the United in the United States, where you, during the Second World War and afterwards, people didn't go to war if they were conscientious, of, you know, objected to. And war. they were ostracized for it. But it's just they, just, they, they were. They draft
0: dodgers. Well,
1: yeah. you had uh, well, Muhammad Ali, had you know, the Cassius claim. That's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> that's true. World. That's true. The majority of all Israeli soldiers are non-combat.
1: I believe Something in service, service for everybody.
0: Yeah, well, I, oh, I'm not trying. I'm just trying to, just trying kind to. Of, I, I don't want to get into the political discussion right. because there's a lot of different perspectives on it, and there's a lot of different realities. You know, it costs more than one million dollars for uh, the IAF, which is the Israeli Air Force, to train a single pilot.
1: Yeah, same.
0: More than a million dollars. The question right. is, is that um, kind of expenditure? Uh, is that Uh, necessary for, let's say, a a group, you know, for this group that this is, that, um, uh, do they actually need that? Means, do they need to invest that? And that's one, that's one perspective that they made, that the the yeshiva proponents would argue and say, listen, um, you're investing this, but you don't really need it. You have plenty of soldiers. Uh, On the other hand, uh, I think it's legitimate to say, hey, why should the people that are not yeshiva, why should they only, why should they be be the only ones risking their lives um, in combat and not the ones in Yeshiva. Uh, but I'm there's, saying there's so many different um, uh, yeah, well, perspectives were, back and forth.
1: Where, are there people in Israel that specifically go to the yeshiva to stay away from the war? Yes, yeah, like so then Yes, the yeah,
0: so of course. The, of course. You know, my, my father. Okay, this is an example. My gr- my grandfather had a yeshiva. Okay, and my father was also in a yeshiva at the age of 18, but he wasn't so interested. You know, he, we didn't have the kind of patience to sit and study. So he, he went to my grandfather and said to him, you know, would you mind putting me in your yeshiva so I could get an exemption? You know, kind of gaming yeah. the system. He said, absolutely not. And he went to the army. He was in the army for four years. It you know, used to be with four years. Now it's only three years. You know? um, so yes, is there you know, fraud in the system? Yes. Um, I, I think that that's the first thing that they should do is make sure that all the people that are actually getting the exemptions are actually studying. You know? I think that would gain them a lot of, uh, of manpower. See either way, but I, I think that the question exists. Could we say, "Hey, we're going to engage in spiritual activities. We're going to study Torah, and if we study Torah, we're doing uh, uh, our fair share to contribute to Israel's plight." Or we could say, "No, we have to take more like a personal responsibility perspective, and uh, and 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 you know, and make uh, the kind of physical uh, contributions to the the security of the state." I think it's a it's, it's a legitimate uh, argument, and it's a very, very contemporary uh, one.
2: Well, now, look, it is one time when the Isra- it looked like Israel was going to get swamped by these Arabs. I think it was under Nasser at that time. Yep. Every woman went out there and got themselves a birth control pill. What do you suppose that could happen if they knew how to use an Uzi? Are you suggesting
1: that women are highly complex and capable? Well, they didn't get the birth control pills in 56 wasn't any kind of out there around 61
0: okay so um, <laughs> so that's kind of what I, I I think the kind of different layers different realms we have in this discussion um, I want to stress this and I cannot stress this enough I don't believe that' I'm, I'm not going to try to make any conclusions I'm just gonna try to present the material um, I because I think that it's it's there's a lot of delicate balances here like we say and uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's room for Um, kind of maneuvering within the sources themselves because you have a lot of kind of perspectives on both sides of the issue in multiple different realms. I'm not going to try to make any conclusions. We're trying to have the discussion um, from a a uh, source-based background. So let's start by talking about, you know, kind of what Bernie brought up, the idea of something being predetermined. Is it possible that even if something is predetermined, it's still negotiable. There's still room for change. Our actions can still have bearing on the outcome. So I found this fantastic clash of the Talmuds in the same book. Book called Nida. It's the very last book in, in the entire Talmud. And on 16b, we find the following statement. If y'all remember, when uh, I gave a class right at this table, was sitting right over here, and we talked about all the things that the Talmud says of what happens to a child before they're conceived.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. had the Torah.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, very interesting. So we find it is a, so there's another statement here that talks about this angel who's called Lila. Not Lilith, Lila. There's this angel, and the angel's responsibility is conception, and it takes the drop, right? the drop is a reference to sperm, and presents it in front of God and says to God, What's going to be in this drop? Tipazu Matehela, will it be a mighty, strong, or weak or feeble? Will it be wealthy or poor? Will it be wise, intelligent, or foolish? However, however, it does not ask, the angel does not ask will it be a tzaddik, a righteous person, or a rasha, a wicked person? And on that, the Talmud concludes from here we know. Everything is in the hands of heaven, aside from fear of heaven. This is something that's repeated in several places in the Talmud. Everything is determined, kind of, by heaven. Right? Will you be rich or poor? Will you be strong or weak? Will you, be, um, will you be wise or foolish? Those things are all predetermined. Kind of your DNA is basically, you, you did nothing to, to change it. However, what you do with that, could you be righteous or, or wicked? That's in your hands. All's in the hands of heaven. Aside from fear of that. So what do we see? We see clearly that, let's say, someone's uh, financial state is kind of predetermined. Right? Before you were born, it was very decided if you're going to be wealthy or poor. Seemingly it's predetermined. Fast forward to the same book, 70B. Right? So we had 16B, now 17, 70B. Uh, it says as follows. Come and ask a question. What should a person do and become wealthy? Actually has actually three discussions. What should a person do and become uh, wise, become intelligent? What should a person do and become wealthy? And lastly, what should a person do and have male sons versus female sons? It gives some techniques, um, very interesting, uh, of how a person kind of could try to maneuver and have male sons versus female children. Either way, the Talmud asks, what should a person do to become wealthy? So it says like this, gives the instructions, he should increase in commerce, do a lot of commerce, and do business with integrity. Be honest in business. Two things, right? Do a lot of business, a lot of commerce. This doesn't say business, commerce. And do business, be honest. Be honest do business with integrity. So the Talmud says, wait a minute. A lot of people tried that. and They weren't successful. A lot of people tried. They tried to do business, lots of commerce. They are busy all day. And they did it with integrity. They were honest, and they weren't successful. Rather, the Talmud says you should ask from He who the wealth is His. Who is that? That's the Almighty. Why, as it says, "For the silver and the gold is mine," says God. First, we have in the Bible, God is the uh, He has all the wealth. He's the billionaire dad, and you want to you should ask for Him. So, if so, why? Uh, so, if so, why do you need to tell me the first uh, the first instruction of do a lot of commerce and do business with integrity because one without the other is not possible. You have to have both. So the conclusion of that Talmud, 70B in Nida, is that there is a roadmap to become wealthy. Number one, do a lot of commerce. Don't waste your time with anything else. Do a lot of commerce. A lot of a lot. Do business with integrity. And lastly, seek mercy or pray from he who has all the gold and silver, which is God. Three things. Very simple. Say thanks. <laughs> okay <Yeah. as> well. <laughs> what do we see that there is a map there is a way to become wealthy you told me only what is it 54 pages earlier you told me that there is there's no way to, you, it's predetermined if you'll be wealthy or poor and now later on it says no there's a romance becoming wealthy this is a major question what's going on what's going on legitimate mm-hmm. so I found in the commentaries they jump on it and they said as follows even though something may be predetermined, man can influence that. And if you have a concerted effort and you're diligent and you, you, know, you combine that with prayer, you can overturn it. Even though something has there's a plan for it. right? You, you're destined to be eh, middle class, uh, upper middle class. Right? With hard work, determination, drive kind of investing what we call personal responsibility, your individual contribution, so to speak, couple that with prayer, then you know you'll become wealthy. You'll become wealthy. Hard work pays off. Hence, what we see is that... I'm trying to mitigate the idea. Like, even if we think something is predetermined, it is. Well, that's kind of the way it would be unless something changes. We... Like you mentioned the word I liked the most was we could partner with God. We have a say in the matter. Our actions matter. Our actions can bear fruit.
4: We have evidence of God changing his mind.
0: Where is that? Oh, I was,
4: um, <clears throat> well, I was thinking of several different times where we have talked with God and tried to change things. Uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Um, Abraham, when he was talking, trying to save uh, Solomon, the several
0: instances um, so you say not only cr- cr- do our, our actions matter but even we could kind of ch- change God's well, God kind changes
3: of his mind. yeah but usu-
0: usually that would be only for the good right. yeah, if God God
3: yeah. right. the king,
1: I forgot his name where God sent the prophet and to told to get his house ready because he was going to die he was going to
4: die yes, and that's Right. and then everybody prayed. Sat, cloth. And sat cloth and they did this
0: so that's another example where God may say, unless I'm not, unless something changes, it's going to be X. But humans have the ability. And God trusts us. Right? God gives us the power with our uh, determinant, with our free will, it means the ability to decide what we're going to do to make an impact. Which is which is a very important thing. Kind of before we get a little deeper into the matter, is that yes, even if. We say that God has total dominion, and God is total, and there is a plan for everyone, and there is a roadmap that we that that, that we, you know that we're supposed to trace. Still, we can change that.
3: But nothing happens until we take ownership that we think something different should be. If we just shut up and row, then things would develop as they develop. It is only our desire for change, and hopefully through the change, something better than anything ever mm-hmm. does. Yeah,
0: but what I'm trying – yeah, that's right. And, and, but that creates this joint effort where, yes, there is some sort of plan for us, but our actions may have an impact in that as well. And we're not just uh, receptive or passive and say, whatever God does to me, that's what it will be. Okay. Um, let's tiptoe a little further into the discussion. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to read about Joseph. Right, the Switz Parshas Vayetze, so we just had this, uh, the stories of um, uh, Jacob and Esau, and the, the clash of the brothers, and uh, now uh, uh, Jacob kind of siphons or uh, surreptitiously steals the uh, blessings, and Esau is out for him, and now he's uh, he's running away. He's out. He's going far. going east, going to Charim, and the, the whole uh, episodes of Jacob and the uh, the uh, um, uh developing of his family is going to begin, but in a few in a few weeks we're gonna read about joseph 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 the tragic story or the at least that began tragically of him having this um kind of tortured relationship with his brothers and uh, being you know the fa- the favorite of the dad and eventually being sold off into slavery in egypt uh being uh seduced by his master's wife Everyone remembers the story
3: huh
0: Potiphar's wife, excellent. And then he ends up in prison. And he's languishing in prison when he is joined in his cell, if we can even say that, uh, by two of Pharaoh's uh, servants, the cupbearer and the baker. And they each have a dream. The story, each have a dream. Remember remembers this? Yes. Yeah. They each have a dream. And they're all flustered by the dream, and Joseph interprets the dream, and he tells the he tells the uh, the the uh, baker that you know the th- you had the three loaves of bread on your head, and the birds were picking from the top loaf, and and that means that in three days and it's to be Pharaoh's birthday, and he's going to decide to kill you. And then he tells the uh, the cupbearer, um, the butler of Pharaoh uh, that also th- the three vines is three days, and you're in three days, you're going to be Serving Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's going to reinstate you. Fine. And then he tells him, he pleads his case to the cupbearer and tells him, please, when you get freed, convince Pharaoh to free me because I was here, I was, I was wrongly accused, I'm innocent, I was kidnapped from my family, do your effort to, uh, to try to intervene on my behalf, I should be granted freedom. And the last verse of the Parsha says that what actually he predicted uh, as the interpretation of the dreams happened. Right? Three days later, was Pharaoh's birthday. He took the baker and he executed them and he reinstated the cupbearer. And the cupbearer uh, uh, did not remember Joseph and he forgot him. And then it's two years later and then, then Pharaoh had his dreams and eventually Joseph is extricated. So... The Midrash, the Midrash, when we say Midrash, Midrash is, is, uh, is a Talmudic era teaching from the authors of the Talmud, but not necessarily one that was included in the Talmud. Even though some Midrash, some Midrashs are indeed included in the Talmud. The Midrash says that the reason why Joseph, the reason why Joseph had to spend another two years in captivity was because he relied on the cupbearer. He told the cupbearer, uh, when you get out, Talk to Pharaoh, talk to Pharaoh, and convince him, and tell him that I was here. That, to tell him that I was uh, that I was uh, placed in captivity, and tell him that I'm here innocently, and try to convince him to, get, to let to let me go. He relied on the cupbearer, and instead of lying on God, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what it says. What do we seem to? What does it indicate that Joseph is held accountable and is punished for doing what we would think is the most? Rudimentary self uh, self reliance or or personal responsibility. If you are placed in captivity, wrongly, you should do everything that you can to get out. If you know someone who's about to go out to freedom, who's going to be in Pharaoh's room every day, doesn't it seem? Doesn't it seem logical or reasonable that you should try to tell them? Listen, you know, I'm here illegally. You know, try to help me. We're pals. I got you know. I interpreted your dream. You see that I'm you know I'm not just another dude. You know, I'm put together, intelligent. The the, the the verses say earlier that he was running the entire operations. You know, kind of like uh, Andy Dufresne. And and he's, we see that he's punished. So this is I'm saying this should give us uh, pause. Uh, when we are just so quick to argue that, no, you have to do everything you can, we see that Joseph was punished. Now, I want to make a quick last Joseph and Jacob and all Jacob's kids and all those people who in, the t- in the times of the Bible, these are people that are way beyond us in their spiritual uh, uh, capacity. Capacity and spiritual uh, awareness. So what's, what Joseph is held accountable for is something that for us to be a mitzvah. So, whatever we're saying about Joseph is Joseph on his level. We'll see that this, this will come into play uh, a little bit later when we see that it kind of that the proper balance of these two elements depends on who you are as a spiritual being. For Joseph on his level, any sort of any sort of um, reliance on any man to him, it was some sort of flaw in his faith. For him, on his level, was a flaw in his faith. For us, I don't believe it would be. But the idea is, for, for, is certainly true, that when someone has that heightened level of faith, to them, they have to just solely rely on God. Solely rely on God. Don't try to you know, come up with these clever ways to try to you know, circumvent God and say, oh, maybe this guy can help me. <laughs> you know, he'll help me get out of here.
1: Uh, and why did he bother to interpret those dreams? Oh,
0: Maybe because for, for who?
1: For those two fellows. Well, I'm saying
0: because because that's kindness. You see two people that are just going nuts to have this dream and they know it's significant, but they have no idea what to do. That's for sure the right thing to do. But he shouldn't have said, ah, well, you're going to be going free. Like, I, this is a ticket to freedom for me, maybe, you know, w- without, you know, kind of letting God you rely on God, you don't need to worry about that. Well, I will. May yes. I
5: just take a very short segue on something Yes. Joseph was so far advanced spiritually yes. than we are modern times yes. and, uh, is it like a generalization what about uh, great rabbis great philosophers who live in our days, what about Maimonides would he be also less advanced than Joseph, would it be a mitzvah for him to try to get out of whatever jail he might have gotten in his mm. time a thousand
0: years ago? Well yes, so um, we have this idea that's uh, ubiquitous in Jewish philosophy that called Yeridata Dorot. Have you heard of that? Yeridata Dorot. Which means the degradation of generations. Which means that as generations progress, you get further away from prophecy. You get further away from Sinai. You get further away from Abraham. You get further away from the great spirituality, and more kind of uh, enmeshed in physicality. And it kind of becomes harder for us to have that same sensitivity to spiritual things that they had. Those so, you, so from? yes, uh, certainly, Maimonides lives a thousand years ago, and uh, towered above his peers. Uh, is someone that kind of butt that trend. You know, even though he came a thousand years after the Talmud, but he did things that no one did. You know, if he was a, a tremendous genius, and obviously we know, like it's just an unrivaled genius, and who just accomplished so much, and whose name is etched into uh, into the Jewish psyche for for forever. Uh, but was he in the level of Joseph? Absolutely not, absolutely not. Now, it's important to to say that, to to, to point out that. Uh, I don't know if I gave this example. I'll give this example. The, I don't I'll give this example, but I don't think I give this <coughs> example. We look at the capacity of individuals to be almost kind of a reflection of the capacity of society. So, in our history classes, we're talking about the cessation of prophecy. No one could become a prophet. Right? Even Rabbi Akivo came only three, four hundred years after the prophecy uh, period had ended. He was incapable of prophecy. Why? Is that because he individually was it was was not? Uh, Remarkable enough? No. My, my, my Moses foresaw Rabbi Akiva and said, I, the Torah should be given via him. Clearly he was someone that on an individual level, personally, was one who was capable of prophecy. Point is, is that the society was not meritorious to the level of of, of, uh, of being capable of having a prophet amongst them. So someone once gave the example of like, if you have a, a light bulb that's 15 feet in the air, you know, if this roof was 15, if this ceiling was 15 feet in the air, even the tallest, you know, even even a who's like what seven foot two, he still can't change change the light bulb, right? because to change a fifteen foot light bulb, no matter how, regardless how tall you are, if the light bulb is fifteen feet in the air, you won't be able to change it unless you're standing on something. So no matter how great the individual is, they won't have uh, that same capacities unless they're standing, so to speak, on the shoulders of of the nation. And if the nation is, is one that is capable of having that, le- that, that level of, of greatness amongst them, well, then that person has that uh, expanded opportunity and is able to maybe reach the higher levels. But, you know, even though, I'm not sure I wrap my head around that they
3: had higher spirituality in, in biblical times. Uh, that does not resonate with me. Mm-hmm. But no. even though that is so, they still had very human qualities and failings. Jacob um, was a master of deceit. He turns out to be on the receiving end of a masterful deceit. (laughs) Jacob is hoisted on his own tarde with his coat of many colors, for which at one time Joseph was. Yes, he has this coat of many colors that is his pride and joy, and it is Potiphar's wife that identifies him by that coat of many colors. So, I'm not sure I go there with. Yeah,
0: but but remember that someone's personal failings. Being of of uh, Absolutely. We never claim, this is a very important point, even Moses, the greatest man that ever lived, is the most uh, castigated uh, individual of the Torah. Right. because And that's, I think, the lesson, to the Torah telling us so much of his flaws is to hammer home this idea that we don't deify people, no matter how great they are. You know? And um, we, don't, we don't ascribe any divine qualities to any human. We don't. That's very important. Well, if those
2: brothers were so advanced, why did they sell their brother Indeed, off?
3: Indeed, not only that, but what they did to the people who raped Dina. Oh, Judah is even held to account that he did not take personal responsibility at a time in which he could have. And see, Simon, my, he was not a nice man. What he was able to lead that band of brothers to do Um why don't you clarify? Because he's saying you're
4: equating him saying that Jews were more spiritual, or higher level of faith, with personal, uh, you know, char- you know, without having character flaws, which I think those two things I-O-Z can be the higher different, level right? Of faith yes, them. Um, um. I'm
3: missing that.
1: Well, faith may have played a more important part in their lives. They had a lot less things going on in the in their their lives in those days. And still,
3: they were capable of doing dastardly deeds.
0: Dastardly. I, <laughs> um, I, I think there's a few points here okay I think point number one and I think you guys might um, disagree yeah I think you certainly will <laughs> is that we cannot read the stories of the Torah on a simplistic level Simplistic, not to mean that they weren't literal and I do believe that Simon and Levi slaughtered the whole town yes but it should have been on a simplistic level that's number one I'm trying to justify them when the Torah doesn't justify them, right? The Torah, the Torah calls them out. Jacob calls them out. Indeed. And they had some flaws. And also, number two, someone having flaws does not necessarily uh, take away from their heightened spiritual awareness. And in fact, the opposite is true.
3: But if they had a heightened spiritual awareness, why would they go to? I that I
0: think I think that they went specifically there because of their heightened spiritual awareness. To them. A spiritual uh, uh, malady of the magnitude that would allow someone to go, uh, you know, just uh, brutally rape their sister is something which is so, uh, you know, is so evil that has to be eradicated. Means I'm trying, I'm I'm trying, I'm trying to turn the tables here. I'm trying to say that yes, because of the heightened spiritual awareness, they, they, you know, they act, they acted in a way which is maybe uh, a little bit uh, not so rounded. Uh, but uh, I think the third point that I want to say is that, uh, the, uh, we mentioned this once before, uh, multiple times before, uh, that the Talmud declares that some, the greater a person is, the higher the level of, of, of conflict with their yitzharah, with their temptations. So yes, if someone has temptations, of course, of course they're going to have temptations. In fact, they're going to be much higher than ours because they're that much greater than us. But
3: my point being, these aren't small...
0: I, I'm, I'm not going to challenge that. And I'm not, not going to challenge and that. Challenge the but remember, these are they people... have these
3: internal wrestlings for selling their brother, putting him in a pit. And they, I do not remember reading that they have this internal angst for years over it. Uh, uh,
0: okay, so... Um, but remember, that's a, that might be a simplistic way of reading it. Uh, if you open up some of the commentaries, they have these great debates as to what was the legitimacy of this decision to do that. Um Uh, They originally there were those that said let's let's put him down. Remember that Mm -hmm. it says uh, one brother said to the other. Which whenever time I says brothers, it's always referring to those who have this brotherly, you know, which is Shimon and Levi. Simon and Levi, because they were the ones that felt this uh, um, hatred of him. Well, this hatred, but that was based upon. Well, they're the ones who. Who slaughtered the town because of because it infringed or because they encroached on their family, so to speak? Yes. They went nuts with families. So, so yes, they, there was this. Um, uh, you know, they had a, a desire at some point to put them down. Uh, what was what's the legitimacy of that? There's great discussion about it. I'm saying, I'm not saying that they that they, that they were justified, uh, but the point is is that they, it wasn't mindless. It wasn't that they were mindless savages? Okay, but either way, this is an idea that we find everywhere that um, that the uh, individuals of biblical times uh, had a much greater uh, spiritual sensitivity than we have.
5: So, is it because God slowly, with a successive generation, of historical period, withdraws a bit more no, potential get, spirituality? I, I don't think it's. I don't, don't
0: want to blame God. I, I want to. I think it's. well not blame. Maybe it's a um, plan. I, th- I think it's. I think it's a result of, of kind of. The longer we're here on earth, the longer we have kind of an earthly-centric view, a physical-centric view of life, and the further we are away from God kind of uh, uh, interfering with us on an individual level, the further we are from prophecy, that's just the, the, you know, regression is natural. Uh, regression is very natural when you are further and further away from let's say Sinai from the great sages uh, of the Talmud further away from the forefathers further away from, from Adam and Eve kind of being direct recipients of God's handiwork.
3: so if we are going to be partners with God in the perfection of our world which is what we talked about yeah. was our mission for yes. even incarnating into these lives then it seems to me that the job is going to be more challenging with each or or, generation.
0: or it's cumulative. So whatever efforts previous generations ha- have contributed, you know, our minor, our comparatively minor, well, it's, it's it's cumulative. So if they did 99.9% of the job, we have that just, you know, one one thousandth left that us, you know, uh, much smaller beings kind of could contribute in that, in that, in that, in that sense. So yes, uh, comparatively, our contribution is going to be little, but uh, the, uh, culmination of all the contributions together are going to culminate in something uh, very grand. Uh, either way, we see Joseph as taken to task by his uh, lack of faith. Now, I want to uh, point out the, this, the commentaries on the Torah have a very, very, very uh, uh, heated discussion as to you know, how could we claim that Joseph had a, a lapse in faith, had he relied on the, on the, on the butler, on the cupbearer. Uh, so I found this really interesting um, perspective from the Rebbeinu Bachai, who is a 13th century uh, scholar. and he, he says like this, he, he kind of gives us some sort of middle ground. He said he didn't rely on the cupbearer, Rather, his, the, the, his lapse was that he assumed that it was his job to, like, find the solution. Like, not only was it, uh, he relied on God, but he said, you know what, I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to try to actually find the solution myself. And obviously God was, is going to make sure that it's going to happen, but I'm, you know, uh, but he didn't lend, his, you know, his entire reliance on, on the cup beer. Uh, and then, uh, according to that, then uh, the flaw in his faith was that he should have lied on God completely, not just for the idea of the redemption, but also for how it's going to happen. You know, it kind of reminds me of the joke that this, uh, this guy was late for a meeting. And he was driving in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is notorious for a lot of things. But one of them is for no parking so he's making circles. the No parking. No parking. He's God. I need this interview. I need it. It starts in two minutes. Give me a parking spot. Give me a parking. Praise out the God in your parking spot. And then, lone the ball. guy pulls out right in front of him. He's like, "Yeah, scratch that. I got it. Scratch <laughs> that. I got it." Uh, you know. So yes, you know, we kind of our our relationship with God and God kind of uh, in, you know intervening with us is. Yes, on the kind of the macro, but also on the individual, and that's where Joseph, uh, according to the Beno uh where, where, his, where his where his flaw. Uh, another example, another example um, from a textual, uh, from Jewish literature, where you find that uh, not having total reliance on God is some sort of uh, flaw in your faith is what we find in the Talmud, in the mission of the Talmud, at the end of Sota. It says as follows. It's talking about the kind of the degradation of the generations like we mentioned so it is it says that when the temple was destroyed in the year what year was the temple destroyed? in the year 70 of the common era when the temple was destroyed men of faith ceased says when when you know it says when when that happened then kind of that was really the last times we had people of faith. So the Thomas says, "What does it mean, man of faith?" What does that mean?
2: Well, there were faithless to begin with before the temple was destroyed. That's why I got destroyed.
0: Well, okay, maybe maybe, maybe even and individuals of faith, whatever, uh, and not just collective uh, collective uh, uh, rejection of faith.
2: The rabbis themselves were the culprits. They poisoned the whole place up there. That's what they was, that's why the temple was destroyed because they were going into idol worship in whole nine yards.
0: Well, we're talking about the first temple, or the second temple. The
2: second temple.
0: Okay. the The background of the second temple is um, uh, the Talmud says is that it's because of sinat of ceaseless of needless or uh, hatred uh, Jews Jews amongst Jews, but. Um, hopefully next time we study we'll cover this, um, that there was lots of different factions. You're right, there was there was a lot of infighting amongst the Jews, a lot of uh, sectarianism, and that kind of culminated in this uh, void of storm leadership that the Romans filled and eventually uh, it, the, you know, there was the revolt in the Year 6 and it kind of blew over and the temple was destroyed. But either way, the temple destruction marked a certain point in time where the Talmud says men of faith ceased. What
3: are you saying? Are you saying
0: ceased? S-E-I-Z-E? I- Z- e? Oh, yeah. Uh, C- e- a- S- e- oh, C-E-A S-E-Z. Ceased. Sorry. I
4: couldn't understand what you
0: ceased. Stopped. Ended. <laughs> uh, so the Talmud says, what does it mean men of faith? What does that mean? Anshei Anshei Amanat. What does that mean? So... Um, Talmud says this is referring to people that don't have faith in the Almighty. Oh, that, 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 the people that do have faith in the Almighty, those people ended, uh, ceased. What does that mean? Uh, as it says, he who has bread in his basket and says, What will I eat tomorrow? behold, he is a man, he is from the men of limited faith. If someone has bread in their basket today, and you say, What am I going to eat tomorrow? That's a person of limited faith. Right? People that have bread today and they worry and they don't worry about tomorrow, I have bread today, do you want to take care of tomorrow? Those are, those are men of faith and that ceased at the time of the destruction of the temple. Uh, so we really could take this in two ways. We could take this in two ways. Uh, we, could eat, we could say number one, hey, look, you know, if you have food today, if you're taking care of today and you're worrying about tomorrow, you're not we rely on God. God gave you enough for today. Well, don't worry about He'll worry about tomorrow. Right? It's a certain lapse, a certain flaw, a certain uh, um, lacking in faith. Okay? That's, that's a legitimate takeaway. What's the other takeaway?
5: Well, we have seen so many people who had bread today, but tomorrow starve to death. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so that's a literal thing. A, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> a legitimate worry. Okay. Who doesn't have an IRA? I think it has to do with lack of trust. <laughs> okay. Uh, but
1: There's a lack of trust in in uh, in God that He would provide. They, they lost that because they see that the temple was destroyed. So they could take away their food. So as there was well. a
0: crisis of faith in that. Okay, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's clearly presented right. as a negative thing. Yeah. And perhaps could we argue, perhaps, that. If we have bread and pasta today, we ought not worry about tomorrow. Is that the takeaway? No. Why not? Be of what you mm-hmm. Well, for sure we're appreciative. The question is, should I worry at all? If I, what am I going to feed my kids tomorrow if I have food for today?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. She would.
0: But what's? But but wait. The Talmud seems to say that that's a lack of faith.
1: Yeah, well, maybe it is. But it's, 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 it's a real. It's you reality.
3: Have the responsibility to care for yourself as well as.
0: Okay, but uh, but maybe I should rely on God.
3: Well, you ask God for the food again for tomorrow. <laughs> you
0: don't know be, you know, tomorrow. We don't know if we're we'll to be around tomorrow, so you say that we shouldn't ask. We shouldn't worry about tomorrow.
4: Yeah, we shouldn't worry about, it, but we can take first responsibility and plan for it. Right.
0: Okay, so it's very interesting because the words of the Talmud it says the Omer, and he says someone who says, not someone who worries or asks. It's, it, it's not so clear. It's a little, there's a little bit room for ambiguity as to what exactly uh, is uh, this quality of lack of faith. But either way, I'm saying, I, I said, listen, you know, this is the level of faith, whatever that may be. But if someone's saying, listen, I have food today, and I'm not thinking about tomorrow, I'm not worried about tomorrow, I'm not doing anything about tomorrow, I'm not saying where I'm going to eat tomorrow, that's a certain level of faith. And that's a level of faith that is not for us. Why? Because the Talmud itself says that stopped at a certain point. It wasn't demanded of subsequent generations. It's not something that we're capable of. of, of uh, in fact, we're, we're capable of that. We're not going to have that same relationship with God, where it's so real and it's so, God's so involved with us on an individual level that we're going to say, eh, What do you mean? If your dad was a billionaire, if you dad it with a billionaire, you have food for today, you didn't see, you open the cupboard, it's empty. Right? If your dad was a billionaire, you live in this massive mansion, and you, open, you have food today, and the cupboard's empty. Would you be worried? No. You wouldn't be worried, right? So if we really had that kind of real, temple relationship with God, we wouldn't be worried. Right. We wouldn't. But that's not a level of the world. That, that realism and spirituality is something that we're not there. It, was, it, it, was, it, it existed before the temple. It was, people actually had that kind of relationship. And maybe it's something that we should know about. It's an ideal that we should recognize that it is possible, theoretically, to reach that level of faith. But for us, if we don't have food in our cupboard for tomorrow... We don't have the level of faith to say, oh, it's God's responsibility. My dad's a billionaire; I'll let him worry about it. Why should I? Why should I worry about the food? You know, uh, if if one if my kids walked into the cupboard and didn't see food, they wouldn't be worried at all because they know that their, their parents are going to take care of them. Right? We don't have that same kind of real relationship with God, and that's okay. That's a level that we could know about. We can maybe strive to achieve. We probably won't achieve it because even the Talmud says it's not. It's not for people post-Temple period. You know, when the temple was around, the idea of God was so much more uh, present, in, you know, in people's consciousness. That's something you could expect of people today, not so much.
1: So, is that considered a bad thing?
0: Well, I think it's a reality. It's a reality. Yeah, it's reality a certain isn't Good or bad. <laughs> yes, it's it's a reality, and it's uh, it's unfortunate that we cannot have that level anymore. Uh, and it's remarkable that people did have the kind of relationship. You know, they—if you know, like I said, they really saw God as their father, who was a billionaire. If the cup empty. I'm not worried about it. They had that relationship, and that's remarkable, and that's something that maybe we could you know, reclaim in some capacity. But I think for our discussion, what it also points out is that that's something that ended, uh, you know, at a point would, uh, almost two thousand years ago.
1: Would you consider that the people in pre pre the temple? Lived? destruction not only jews but uh, everybody uh, being more superstitious than they are today uh,
0: more superstitious well yes you had a lot of uh, you had a lot of people that were superstitious i mean everybody's um, I,
1: superstitious I, in one way or another but then if
0: you're not superstitious maybe you're like a little stitious yes yes <laughs> <laughs> um yes i think i think that's for sure true a month non-juice um uh, the Torah says that the Torah itself says, We don't we don't believe in superstitions, and it says you shouldn't believe in superstitions. You believe in God. Um, it's not just like a, you know we don't believe in deja vu or uh, you know if if you see the Talmud says if you see like the, a black cat crossing and and walking over like people have these weird superstitions. You know if you saw like a deer crossing over uh, a loaf of bread, you wouldn't eat the bread. All those things are just it's the nonsense that people believe. And that's not. We don't believe that the Talmud says, or the Torah says. You should. It's a myth from the Torah to not believe, and don't, don't, don't try to figure out the cosmos. Wants to mean the future. Don't, don't overthink the thing. Right? It says, "Tamim <laughs> You should be, um, uh, tamim. What's the word for tamim? Uh, uh, you should be. I don't know, I can't think of the right word. Uh, you shouldn't, don't, don't try to overthink uh, things. Right? You should be uh, uh, honest or something like that. Uh, not the right word. Uh, be pleasant with God or just be, don't, uh, be. Trusting? Uh, yeah, be trusting. Uh, not, not, not the best translation.
1: By the way, deja vu is not a good example because there is there is a rational reason for deja vu.
0: Maybe there is. <laughs> well,
1: it has to do with coming into one side of the brain and seeing it on the other, and it's a, it's a time thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a real phenomenon.
0: Interesting. <laughs> Let's move on here. I have a whole bunch of stuff. We didn't even get into the, to this topic. I know, Dan's nervous, we didn't did. cover it. <laughs> I once made this, uh, Vartor, I, I, ha- I kind of had this. Uh, my wife told me, Chaya told me, like, don't tell the story. I said, I'll tell it. We can have this. So I once... Um, I was with my family, it was over, I think it was Passover, and I said a Dvar Torah, I said a Torah thought, Torah idea, and it caused great controversy in our family. We have a statement in the Mishnah, in chapters of the Fathers. It says if there's no Torah study, there's no eretz, there's no proper conduct. If there's no proper conduct, there's no Torah study. If there's no wisdom, there's no fear of God. If there's no fear of God, there's no wisdom. If there's no knowledge, there's no insight. If there's no insight, there's no knowledge. And the last thing I said, if there's no flower, there's no Torah. If there's no Torah, there's no flower. So I said, we have a statement here. If there's no flour, there's no Torah. Right? That's an obvious question. It should have said, if there's no bread, there's no Torah. right? Because everyone, all the commentators say, hey, you have to be, you know, to, to really study Torah, you have to have kind of your your, your physical kind of uh, needs covered. So it should have said, if you have no bread, you have no Torah. Why if you have no flour? So they those say, well, flour, they just said flour. But I'm saying... If the to, if the mission should, have, should if the mission used the most correct word, it should have said there's "no bread, there's no Torah." Why is it "no flour"? So I said, because when someone has flour, it means they have bread and they have flour for tomorrow. To, to truly study Torah, uh, uh, to have peace of mind to study Torah, you have to have not only bread for today, flour for tomorrow. And my brother jumped at me. It was great. We was some family fireworks. Because what do you mean? If you had bread today, if you have bread in your basket today. You shouldn't worry about tomorrow. You shouldn't worry about tomorrow. Rely on God, and I think that they're right, but they're wrong. They're right because ideally, that is uh, that is a you know something that yeah you know, that's that's a faith on its highest level. For us, I think the mission is saying that you have to have flour as well. At least tomorrow, maybe this week's bread taken care of to have that peace of mind. Because otherwise, uh, your, your mind is constantly, you're going to say, ah, well, believe in God, let's study Torah. And then your mind is kind of like just, you know, going to meander towards like, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, like, what am I really going to do? You know, that kind of, uh, uh, of uh, the peace of mind needed to study Torah, you have to have flour as well. And then, remarkably, I found in the Maharal, he actually said the same thing. So, anyhow, it was a victory for Team Walby. In Deuteronomy, chapter 22, we find an interesting mitzvah. The mitzvah is you have to build a fence around your roof. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. you should build a fence around your roof, you say a bracha. it's a mitzvah. To build a fence around your roof. You have a roof, people can fall off. Build a fence. What's it telling us? It's telling us, that if you don't build a fence, don't place blood. So the continuation of the verse, don't place blood in your house. Well, you don't want to have blood in your house. You don't want people, kids falling off the roof and dying, God forbid, in your house. And the Chinuch Sefer Chinuch, which is um, a uh, the book that gives us the it's all six hundred thirteen mitzvahs in the in the order of, of where they're from the Talmud and it gives us like background to the mitzvah. So it's a very very nice. Um, commentary that he writes as to the reason why we have the mitzvah. And he's, I'm going to read it. Uh, I translated it. The roots of the mitzvah. What's the roots of this mitzvah? Because even though the Almighty supervises us personally, you can tell that I translated it. And all that happens to us, good or bad, is a result of his decree and his command. So he starts off with the premise. Even though God is involved, God supervises us on an individual level, and everything that we do is, is a result of, his, uh, of, of what he kind of has you know, mapped out for us. And as our sages taught, there's a, verse, there's a statement in the Talmud, a person cannot bend his finger from below unless it is thus decreed from above. So even those simple kind of actions that we do, uh, they have kind of a, a, a you know, godly kind of direction to them still a person must guard himself from the common happenings of the world. Why? Because the Almighty built the world, uh, created the world, and built it on the foundations of nature. Right? Nature means there's rules of physics, like nature. And he decreed that fire combusts and water extinguishes a flame. And likewise, nature demands that if a large boulder fall, falls in the head of man, that his, he- that his head will be smashed. Or if a person falls from the roof of a the building, he will die. The Almighty also endowed the bodies of, of, of men. This is a point that uh, Yal brought up here and blew into the nostrils the souls of life, capable of intelligence to guard the body from all danger and place both the body and the soul in the universe and, uh, and, and the rules of nature will direct them and cause upon them actions. Because, this is an important sen- sentence, because the Almighty subjugated the, man, the body of man to nature, therefore he commanded man to protect from accidents. Otherwise, if you don't build that fence around your roof if you don't prevent yourself from accidents nature to whom he is subjected will do as per the rules of nature and if you don't protect yourself from it so what it's telling us the reason why we have to build a fence around the roof is because even though God is in control God has a plan and God everything we do is, is, is subject uh, to, you know, to God's will and God's decree still we have nature and nature controls us and we're in the hands of nature and if you blindfold yourself and try to cross the freeway or if you don't build a f- uh, fence around your roof, someone probably will die, because that's what nature says, and that's what God wa- God wants that we should live in a, in, in a world that uh, that there's there's rules, and we're subject to those rules. However, there will be a select few that, due to their piety and cleaving to the Almighty's ways, the King desires them. Which is the verse uh, from the Bible. So it's, uh, there are great. Uh, these are the great righteous uh, from yesteryear, men of renown, like our great and holy forefathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many of their descendants, like Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, famous people that we know, to whom he subjected nature to them. And uh, he continues, and I'll skip the rest. What he's telling us is like this. God supervises us. God decrees what's going to happen to us. Yet, we can change that. If we live a life and we don't protect ourselves from accidents, accidents will happen because that's what God wants. God wants us to live in a world. He gave us the intelligence. He gave us the knowledge. He gave us the insight. He gave us the wisdom to know that certain things are dangerous. If the boulder falls on your head, if you fall off the building, you're probably going to die. Therefore, he says, and that's what he wanted, we live in nature and the nature rules us. Nature rules us and therefore we have to put a fence around the roof we have to protect ourselves from accidents. Why? Because it might be that I was destined for 85 long, healthy, happy, and harmonious years, but I changed that by not guarding myself. Yes, there are a select few. There are the Abrahams of the world that nature is subject to them. When Abraham went into the fire, he didn't get uh, consumed. Chanaim, Shalom, Azariah, they went into the fire, their hair wasn't singed. Right? These are people that miracles happen because nature is, it doesn't have a control of them, they have control over nature. Now, how does that work? Yeah, it teaches Yeah. <laughs> okay, the way that works is very simple. Very simple, right? Uh, we're told, alma. How did God create the world? What was the blueprint that God used to create the world? Drumroll, please.
5: Quantum physics.
0: The Torah. So- to create quantum physics, the Torah. The Torah uh, uh, um, predated the world, and therefore the Torah kind of is the blueprint for the world and the laws of nature. We're thrown into that world. However, we have the ability to go to the front of the line and study Torah. If someone has complete command of all of Torah, if someone is a master of Torah, then by virtue of that, they're also the master of nature because they can kind of supersede uh, nature in the pecking order. Torah begot nature, nature, uh, and then man is under that. Man is, the, is dominated by nature. However, if man kind of is able to completely uh, cleave to Torah and have Torah kind of, Torah be the influence of man, he kind of jumps the priority scale and, and he then has control of nature.
5: So, so the Hollywood got it right when a magician somewhere gets up and says some legend incantation Magic happens, right? Which is something against the law, the law of nature. Aracadabra. Well, cadaver. Yes. Yes. <laughs> when I say magician, way. not like a children's holidays uh, I'm, parties, but something.
4: To back it up. So when God does his miracles, when he goes through, does he use the same laws? So what's
0: interesting is that we're told in this particular chinoch, um, he says that really miracles can happen in one of two levels. This is very interesting because what he's saying is that not when God does a miracle. God splits the sea. Who who is supposed to see, right? The entire nation split the to It was a miracle for everyone. Right? But, but There's times where God does miracles, and there are times where the individual is capable of doing miracles, pulling it out of their hats, because the individual has that higher pecking order, right? This is someone who nature is subject to them. That's the statement. That's the that's the word. So, uh, so that it could be, I mean,
4: could be God just
0: gives. And God subjected nature to them. So we find in the Talmud, we find these discussions of uh, individuals who resuscitated the dead, who split the sea. Stopped the sun. Yeah, like the, I'm saying that's because if you're on that high level, there's no big deal for you because I mean, nature's subject to you. It's it's no different than than, than gravity working. You know, gravity works because gravity works because that's, cause that's when, the way nature works. However, if you have the control of that, we have that story of um, David uh, being suspended in the air. All these awesome – Awesome stories. And you know what? And there's once the commentator who asked the question and says, Listen, we made this big deal about splitting of the sea. Big deal, splitting the sea. What's the big deal? If you open the Talmud, it tells a story about Pichas Banyar, one of the rabbis of the Talmud who lived 1500 years later, also split the sea. What's the big deal? Why do we mention the big deal in the Exodus in Egypt and all the miracles? It happened 1500 years later with men that were you know, not half as great as Moses. That's a question that's was asked in, uh, by one of the commentators. And he says, of course, Moses split the sea before the Torah was given. So that's a miracle. That's a real miracle. That's God intervening with the way things are supposed to work. Once we have the Torah, it's no big deal to split the sea if you have that Torah on such a high level where you become a master of Torah and by virtue of that a master of nature. The miracle of the Exodus was that preceded the Torah. What 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 we're saying over here is like that. Uh, well, yes, I, yes, yes. Some uh, remember uh, a miracle is just a, a natural a, a rear natural. It's an earthquake happening at a precise time. You know, sort of miracle is. You know, it's something that, that could be understood in a natural, but having a very specific and you know directed and individualized application of that. You know, if if the splitting of the sea was done by virtue of an earthquake, that's fine. The point is that it was an earthquake at precisely the right time when the Jews needed it. So, it so yes, matter. you might understand it on, on a natural, on a natural, or maybe it was a suspension of, of nature, like food raining down from heaven. That's a suspension of of, of nature for forty years, feeding an entire nation. Right. That's a suspension of nature. That's not like a natural thing. Right. Either way, we're we're presenting an an alternative way of how miracles happen when nature is given in the hands of individuals who have earned it.
1: Okay. Before you get, to, let's get back to the fence around the yes, roof. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, that, that do we we see these things? Fences around the roof. Have you ever seen a roof community? that doesn't have a fence? Sure.
0: The point is a roof that people go on. The point is the, the, the fence of the roof is an example, but it means that you don't leave dangerous things hanging around.
1: No, I understand that. So. It's just a representative thing. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, sure. yeah, we so go into Williamsburg and you have all these huge fences all around, you know. I no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a, lot of,
0: a lot of the misses of the Torah are ones that, were, that are common sense. Oh, no, and I, it's, it's common sense to have a fence around the roof. Yeah. People hanging hang on a roof. You, you know, if you go to an apartment building that has a roof that people go on top of it, I better hope then there'll be a fence. fence. Yes. I better hope they'll have a fence. So, yeah, but for us, it's a mitzvah as well. You know, just like there's a law in the Torah not to steal, and that happened to have been uh, adopted by many societies, thankfully, right?
5: So, obviously, personal injury lawyers were around during biblical times as well, right? They were going after people. Yes, because uh, before, what I've
2: been looking up on the internet, in Israel, long ago, they when it's hot, they
5: used to sleep up in the roof. So, yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, in Israel, world. Jerusalem, it's
0: all apartment buildings, almost all, exclusively.
4: Walks across. They led us across the rooftops, and we yeah, yeah well, was it dangerous? Well, no, there were yeah, really, yeah, fences
0: around the roof.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, the, the but,
0: point, the, but, but the
3: the point, but they do use
1: the roofs as part of their roofs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a different story.
0: But now, uh, uh, um, maybe I should, maybe I made a mistake in how I started. I should have started yeah. with the more central. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we still have some time. We go a little over time, a little, a little bit. We find. A disagreement in the Talmud about medical uh, seeking medical um, help, and this is a quote from Brachos sixty a. Brachos is the very first of the books of the Talmud, and if you remember last week we talked about the Talmud in Brachos fifty seven b. This is only a few pages later, sixty a. It says as follows: It is not the way of man to seek medical help. So what's the alternative? Rather to beseech the Almighty for mercy. Just that they so behaved, which means that uh, before people decided to go seek medical help, the way it was, or the way it was meant to be, was that if someone got sick, they prayed to God, and that's how that's how their their healing process went. Just that people started behaving by going to seek medical profession. Therefore, that that's the way it kind of uh, developed, and now you have to go to the doctor because people kind of had this lapse of faith, and therefore the less ideal way of 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 dealing with of dealing with physical uh, injury uh, and disease uh, was uh, became the standard. So that's the first opinion. It says, Abaye, Abaye will keep the whole, that name in your head. Uh, don't say, He says, reject that, don't say that, for they taught in the Academy of Rabbi Ishmael. So I remember two names, Abaye is quoting from Rabbi Ishmael, and he, and he quotes a verse in Exodus. And he shall surely heal, From here we know that a doctor has permission to administer medicine. Point being that Rabbi Yishmael, and reinforced by Abaye, they both say that seeking medical help is sanctioned in the Torah. In fact, the Torah itself says, "Go to doctors." And it's not, you know, it means even the ideal setting. We should. It's 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 normal. It's proper to seek out medical attention, even from the Torah's perspective. So we see once again a disagreement, and and. Uh, in the later commentaries, they try to, uh, you know, they grapple with this. or oh, we don't like this side, like this opinion, like that opinion, uh, etc. Brachos 35b. Now listen to this. This is the, uh, this is the um, I would say, probably the place where we should have started. <laughs> the rabbis taught. Listen to this disagreement. And you shall gather your diva safta de ganecha. That is part of the Shema, the second chapter of Shema. It says that if you you, you do well you're behaving this and that, you shall gather your grain. And we know in our class that the Torah is not going to tell us anything superfluous. What is the meaning? What is the reason why it needs to tell us that you gather grain? Of course, that's what people do. Of course you gather grain. Farmers gather grain. Why are you telling us that you should gather your grain? So ask the Talmud, what's the purpose of saying this? For it says, the butch of Torah shall never cease from you. We find a different verse that says you should never stop studying Torah. Never stop studying Torah. Perhaps that is to be interpreted literally. Never stop studying Torah, even to gather your grain. Therefore, it says you should gather your grain. You should couple with the Torah the ways of the land. You should have this blend of studying the Torah, not stopping for a second studying Torah, but also also gather your grain. You have to find a way to make this marriage work. On one hand, living the life of you know, regular personal responsibility, we would say, plus having the, 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 the delving into Torah and, not, and not, uh, uh, not letting go of the Torah for a second. That's the first opinion. These are the words of Rabbi Yishmael. The first opinion is Rabbi Yishmael. The same Rabbi Yishmael told us that seeking medical help is sanctioned in the Torah. Very much what we would call today a very pragmatic approach. Personal responsibility is sanctioned by the Torah. It tells us to seek medical help. It tells us, tells us to have a job and gather gather our grain. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai, argues. What does he say? If a person plows during the times of plowing, and plants during the season of planting, and harvests during harvest season, and grinds in gri- grinding season, and winnows during the times of wind, basically, he says a person is going to a farmer is busy the entire year. What will become of the Torah? When is a person going to study Torah? When is a person study Torah? You're busy your whole time with the, your, your livelihood. Yeah, you have the you have the tax season in the April, then you have everyone files in September, you know, and then you're doing the tax planning for the year, at the end of the year. Right? You're busy the whole year. The farmer's busy the whole year. Everyone's busy the whole year. There's high season, the low season, but you're, you're always busy. When are you going to study Torah? That's what, Rabbi, that's what Rabbi Shimon asks. So what's his response? Rather, when Israel is doing the will of the Almighty, then their work is done by others. If you do the work of the Almighty, you study Torah, you don't worry. God will take care of you. Your, your, your father is, a, is the billionaire. Let him worry about, about, about feeding you. Don't worry about it. That's when you're doing the will of the Almighty. And when Israel is not doing the will of the Almighty, then the work is done by themselves. And additionally, the work of others is done by is, yeah, done, like is done welfare. by them. Well, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, maybe. Uh, uh, well, I, I have another story, but Rabbi Shimon that kind of uh, kind of gives sheds light on what his perspective was. So we see a disagreement on our very matter. According to Rabbi Shimon, he says, "Find this middle ground. Torah is very important. Having a personal responsibility is very important. Find you, you have the Torah and live and live and live a life." That's Rabbi Shimon. Comes old Rabbi Shimon, and he says, "What? You're always doing business; you'll never study Torah. Rather, if you actually, if you completely devote yourself to God, he'll watch out for you. You're working with them like others; don't worry about how how that will happen." Says Abaye, once again the same Abaye that we quoted. Many did like a Rabbi Shimon. Many people acted like Rabbi Shimon, and and succeeded, like Rabbi Shimon, and did not succeed. What he's telling you is that evidence has shown or uh, uh, experience has taught that there are a lot of people that tried to do what like Rabbi did, they tried to have this nice blend, this nice marriage, and it worked for them. Some, and a lot of people tried to do like, like Rabbi Shimon, say, i am just condemning myself to Torah study, and they did not succeed. Interestingly, he's not picking sides. What he's saying is, a lot of people tried this and it worked, a lot of people tried this and it did not work. He's basically taking an experience-driven model Right, means-tested model of saying this seems to work more than that. Or that uh, it seems like he's not saying he's not saying that one of them is more legitimate. He's saying one of them just happens to work better than the other one. Uh, in there was the,
1: something about uh, where did I read it? it was either Talmud or, or actually in uh, Deuteronomy about? Limiting your limiting the amount of work in order to study the Torah. Oh my mother says my says,
0: listen, everyone has to work. Gotta work. And you should work at least three hours a day and study the rest of the nine. The other nine. <laughs> That's what he said. Um, the he one of the one of the one of the primary commentaries on the Talmud, what he tells us I think is very crucial uh, to understanding kind of what it means for us. Uh, This Rabbi Shimon that we quoted, so you said welfare. There's a... um, Rabbi Shimon is one of the pivotal characters uh, in the Talmud. Uh, He lived under Roman uh, oppression. And there's this great story about him, actually kind of basically the story of his life, uh, where... uh, This is... um, I'll read it from Hebrew and I'll kind of translate as, as we go along Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon were talking and there were a bunch of, there were a bunch of other people that were listening to the conversation and Rabbi Yehuda started off by saying how beautiful are the actions of these Roman hosts he's saying look they built uh, uh, markets they built bridges they established bath houses we know the Romans when they come in they organize things they updated everything they built the roads they built the infrastructure and Rabbi Yossi was listening there. He was quiet. He didn't say anything. And Rabbi Shimon, he says, "What do you mean? All oh, everything they did, they, they did for their own benefit. They built uh, marketplaces so they could have, you know, uh, um, brothels. They built uh, uh, they built bathhouses so they could just uh, 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 self. Um, they could just kind of uh, pleasure themselves. They built bridges so they could collect taxes." That's what they had this conversation about the merits of the Romans. And there were other people listening. Then one guy said, oh, "I just heard Rabbi Shimon mathing, the Romans. I am going to go tell the Romans." He went and told the Romans, and they said, "Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda, the first one who praised the Romans, he's going to be elevated, so he he got a position." Uh, Rabbi Yosi, who was quiet, who didn't you know didn't didn't kind of uh, agree or you know didn't sign off on this praise, he's going to be sent to exile. And Rabbi Shimon, who who uh, uh, spoke negatively about the Romans, he's going to be executed, and he ran away. And he ended up in a. Rabbi Shimon where he end up in? Cave, wasn't it? Booyah. He ended up in a cave. 13 years. That's right. So, what happened? This is the Talmud describing uh, the cave. It says they were sitting, uh, submerged in. It was him and his son, Rabbi Eliezer, Belazar. They were sitting submerged in uh, sand. The entire the entire day, were studying. Uh, how did they How did they eat? So they the, a stream of water just appeared outside their cave, and a a carob tree as well just sprouted up outside. They just ate from the carobs and drank from the water, and that's how they survived for for twelve years. They came out after twelve years, and. They they saw people uh, that were just fooling around, wasting time. So they said, "You guys are you guys are taking the eternal world, and you're neglecting it. And you're just spending time once and and then just everything just turned on fire. Everything like like everything everything they looked at just went 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 ablaze. You know. So someone said so 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 this kind of um, message was relayed to them. You guys are destroying the whole world. Get back to your cave. So went back to the cave in twelve months." And they came in after twelve months, and they saw a guy who was walking with two, um, with two basically two flowers for Shabbos. And he said to him, "Why do you have have to have two flowers? You have just one." He says, "One of them is to remember Shabbos. One of them is to guard Shabbos." And I said, "Oh, we could live in this world." That's the story. Rabbi Shimon spent thirteen years of his life living in a cave, relying totally on God. His perspective. Is clearly one that he personally embodies, and it's something that he demanded of others as well. And he had a hard time seeing others wasting their time. For him, it was very legitimate to say, "Listen, do 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 God's will; God will take care." And and says that a lot of people tried that, but they didn't succeed. Not because it was not legitimate, because they weren't holding at that level where they can have that total reliance in God, and God will reciprocate with have with with. you know, providing for them, they couldn't just say, ah, "I'm living in the cave, whatever happens," and then you know, and just totally relying on God. A lot of people tried it; it didn't work for them. A lot of people tried to Rabbi Schmaltz and most people are are yes, they could have this kind of coexistence of personal responsibility and taking care of, of their spiritual uh, uh, responsibilities as well. That is something that that is is capable that we could um, demand of of the of the average uh, fellow. Uh, and I think that that's really uh, a good place to kind of, uh, you know, a good perspective to take away from this whole discussion. Yes, we look at someone like Joseph. Joseph, at his level, any sort of reliance on any individual is something which, to, on, to him, with his level of faith that he was capable of or that he had, it's something that, he, you know, is mistaken in his part. Someone, Rabbi Shimon, he was able to live a life of just relying on God. Don't worry about anything else. You don't have to go to the doctor. It's all God trying to just give you messages. Listen to the messages. Total reliance on God, and He'll take care of you. For most of us, we take the words of Rabbi Shimon, right? We take this kind of middle ground. Yes, we cannot, try to, we cannot say, well, I'll rely on miracles, and God will take care of us. We have to make sure that our responsibilities are filled, right? We have to have this coexistence of our spiritual and our physical lives. And we're told, Moses, on the footsteps of, of, uh, of, of the Red Sea, he starts praying to God, right? They're faced with, basically, annihilation. They have the, 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 the uh, armed uh, Egyptians coming after them, and they're, they're faced with the sea. And Moses starts praying, and God says, my like, why are you praying now? Now's not a time for prayer. Now's a time for action. Right? That's also a perspective that even for Moses, there's times for us to say, listen, I need to do something. God expects me to do something. We don't believe in the partnership word that you said at the beginning. We don't believe that we just that God just has this plan and we're just just kind of filling in the dots. We're partners with God in the plan. We're creators as well.
2: We're creators.
0: The the uh, heavens are for God. The land is for us. Right? That can mean a lot of different things, and it's used in Jewish literature in a lot of different ways. Uh, but one of the ways that, th- th- that we use is that, yes, there's this coexistence. There's, there's God doing godly things in this spiritual realm, and there's our responsibility on this world. And this world is ours, and we can decide, we can make the most of it. Our actions matter. Our actions have impact. And that, those two things of, of, of having that relationship with God from the heavens and our responsibility from earth, those things together uh, for us, I think, is a, is a, very, is a very healthy, uh, healthy outlook. Uh, lastly, I wanted to share my grandfather's perspective on this, uh, because he kind of turns the issue on its head. Um, he says a lot of people, when they talk about faith, faith in God, relying on God, you know, they're making a huge mistake. If you feel like you're giving up anything by saying I'm relying on God, if it's if it's if it's a leap for you, says, I don't know what to do, I, I'm, I'm all nervous. Okay, I'll rely on God. You know, if there's any sort of, of, of uh, feeling that like you're being different than what is natural, that's not faith in God. Faith in God means that you actually have this relationship where that's normal. If someone actually has faith, they don't know it. Because then that's just the reality. If you think, oh, you know what? I'm going to give up on that or I'm going re- rely- to rely on God. Like, you make a decision to do that. That's not relying on God. That's you know that's that that's playing the lottery. That's hoping. You know, <laughs> relying on God means that this it's a relationship where that's a reality. I'm not giving up. I'm not forfeiting anything. That's just the reality of my relationship. I'm doing what feels natural to me. Faith, and in in, in this particular uh, uh, discussion of the interplay, the interface between faith and personal responsibility. As you grow, as you develop as a spiritual being, your relationship with God will become more natural, and it will feel very natural to pray when you need something. And that's where you're holding. And, that, and you won't feel like, I'm going to do an act of faith now. It won't feel out of character right, to act in a faithful way, because that's just who you are. That's not something that, that's not something which is a, any sort of leap or any sort of uh, uh, level that you're trying to ascend to just you know, for the moment. It feels very normal. And as you grow, it'll, 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 you, you, your um, reliance or the, this balance will, 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 will grow or will develop as well. I think that's a, that's a, that's a healthy uh, uh, kind of conclusion for us that, yes, there's legi- we didn't really take any sides. And we saw perspectives from both matters. And I think that both of them uh, have legitimacy because it kind of depends on where we are. Uh, for someone to say, listen, uh, how can I give 10% of my money to charity? Ten percent. You know how much that is. Ten percent. You know what? It meets my my tax bracket. You know, for that person, well, they're not holding the level of faith where, uh, where, that, uh, where that, where that, where where that's demanded of them. It should feel very natural. In fact, the, Tal- the Talmud says that there's one thing that God says. This is something you could test me on. That's, ever nothing else can you test me on. Nothing else. But I see aser b'shvil asher right give 10% of your money to charity in order that you become wealthy. And this is something that I guarantee it. And I guarantee it, and I want you to test me on it. And I don't know anyone that has, that has re- regretted any charity that they've given. But for a lot of people, I, I had a great, oh, this is great. Just, I had a, uh, this is one of a really, really close friend of mine, one of my 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 students. Um, and I said, when I come to the dinner, we made a dinner uh, uh, this past week. Uh, I so said when he comes to dinner, he's like, well, uh, you know, he doesn't want about the he doesn't want to he doesn't wanna to. he told me I don't support you support your cross. I don't support your cross. We uh we had asked him for a gift and he said no, I basically what he told me I don't support your cross. And I was I was very disheartened because I was very close with him, very friendly with him. And he told me he's gonna give me this amount of money. I don't want to say the amounts of money. I'll give you this. Um and I was I was really disheartened by that, and then I realized it's not that my, my cause he doesn't support, it's that he never had an education of what it means to give charity. So I met him actually on Friday. I said to him, we had a very nice hour and a half long uh, meeting, but I asked him, I said, what causes do you support? Like, like, what do you support? So he said, well, actually, when there was this, um, uh, the uh, tsunami, he gave 50 bucks. So I said to him, Look how much, this, this is something that you say you support, but you pledged to us more than that. So you do support us. It's just that you need to learn that when you give charity, God will provide you back. You do indeed support us. You do, you do indeed support us, and, 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 and that's remarkable. We just proved that you, you pledged to give us more than you gave to what you claimed to that you, that you support. It's just that as you grow in faith, it does, it's not a big deal, you know, I, to give 10%. Like... It, the people that actually do that, it doesn't. It doesn't it's not a leap. It's not a leap because they're holding at that at that at that po- at that level, that point, that juncture in in their uh, spiritual development. So I, I think that's a that's a good way to look at it. Uh, and you know, if let's try to do acts of faith that are in line with what we what we feel like. You know, and as we grow, as we develop our spiritual sensitivities. Things will feel more and more natural, and that's something that, you know, and our kind of our needle move uh, moves up. That's my perspective, and thank you all for listening. And uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Next week we're off, yeah. and we'll see you all in two weeks. Happy
5: Thanksgiving, man. Thanks. Thank what, you. Do we know what the topic is? Two weeks?
0: Yes, we have two back-to-back weeks of history, part four and part five. Oh, thank you so much. Yes Hey, hey. Jonah uh, Hey Jonah Jonah, Jonah. Yeah. Hey Nice to meet you How you doing? you yeah. doing? Thank you, do Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Come yeah. back Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I That's second
3: time. I know I you've seen now. it before Yeah Yeah I came once before That's good one. Oh I didn't